Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are new here, welcome! I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Rounding out our spooky season and running a day late because of the ongoing kitchen hell going on downstairs, which I've feeling very close to the subject of this week's book, which is Sarah Winchester, probably the most famous haunted person in America, making this week's book of the week, Captive of the Labyrinth, Captive of the Labyrinth, Sarah L. Winchester, heiress to the rival fortune by Mary Jo Ignafo. The accompanying cocktail is called the Winchester and is one part amaretto liqueur, one part whiskey, and one part ginger wine. So let's do this. Sarah Lockwood Pardee was born in the summer of 1839, specific date is not actually known at this point in time, to Leonard and Sarah Pardee. She was the fifth of seven children uh, that was born to this couple, the second to bear the name Sarah. Pardee's, the Pardee's first born daughter was Sarah E. Pardee. She lived less than a year before dying. The rest of the Pardee children, however, made it to adulthood and the family grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Since I have the least amount of amaretto, about one ounce of amaretto. See, tiny bottle, just killed it. This gets built in the cup. It's supposed to be a Tiffany glass, which I don't have a Tiffany glass. I have a blue solo cup with a spoon in it. You build it over ice. Leonard Pardee, her father, was a master woodworker. However, for a period of time, his shop was actually not doing very well. And because he had a growing family, I mean, six surviving children and a wife to, to feed and care for. He managed a public bathhouse for about a decade. Now this is not as salacious as it sounds. Um, as the industrial age revved up, the ready availability of hot water made public bathhouses popular locations to go as the populace of the 19th century kind of embraced the maxim that cleanliness is next to godliness. Technically, whiskey is fermented off of wheat. Uh, well, okay, whiskey is any fermented grain, if you will. I went with rye whiskey because, hey, it's Winchester brand. It just seemed appropriate to the cocktail. So I went with a rye instead of a more common wheat whiskey, but here we go. Bourbon is corn. Isn't that fun? All right. Basically, Leonard Party took the coins and directed the men to the men's side and the women to the women's side and made sure if any fights happened, he broke them up accordingly. Not that there were a whole lot of fighting back then. People were a lot more genteel when it came to their public bathing. Now gradually though, as the economic downturns of the 1830s and 1840s started to improve, his carpentry shop took off and he eventually became fairly wealthy, moving the family to the up and coming neighborhoods, finally settling in on Brown Street, where the new neighbors, the Winchesters, had moved in. Now the initial Winchester fortune was not made in the manufacturing of firearms. Oliver Winchester, who was William Wart Winchester's father, made his fortune by patenting a new neckline in fashion. Uh, literally, in 1845, he had spent a decade working in a mercantile with his twin brother Samuel Winchester. And in that 10 years, the, the two of them had determined that men's shirts just did not fit the way they should, mostly because prior to 1845, um, when he patented a rounded collar, all shirts were made on a straight line. So it was just straight across here, which would basically create bulging fabric around the neckline. And so he played around with the, with shirt making for a little bit, patented a rounded neckline, and uh, began manufacturing the Winchester and Davis shirt collars, shirt manufacturing, 
He made it with his best friend, John Davies, not Davis, Davies. And so for a decade or more, that's how he made the fortune. And his shirt sold phenomenally well. He, he guaranteed that they would fit better than anything you had ever owned before, and they did. And part of his ability to mass produce these shirts for department store sale was his ability to recognize the benefits of a sewing machine and to hire women to do the sewing on these new machines. I mean, basically, he, he hired them out to do piecemeal sewing and was an early mover in adopting the, the new technology of the sewing machine and reaped massive benefits, becoming a millionaire in just 10 years off of this. Let me stir this up really quick. His upward mobility was such that, like, if Sarah hadn't literally been the girl next door when his kids were growing up, it, she might have been accused of being a social climber and a gold digger because the mobility was absolutely tremendous. It just skyrocketed upwards with the sales of these shirts, and they figured out mass production and everything. So he was right at that cutting edge of the industrial age. It was a girl next door situation, and given how withdrawn Sarah becomes after William's death, I think it was very much a love match between them, and there's nothing to indicate that this is anything other than love. Now, Oliver Winchester, following his success with the Winchester and Davies shirt manufacturing, took some of his money and put it into a small passion project, which was the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company, which was basically bankrupt when he bought it and brought it into solvency, renaming it the New Haven Arms Company. And this was just a bit of fun for a gun lover, basically. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, he didn't intend for it to become the new company, the new family business. It was just a, a project that he was passionate about. He believed that firearms were the, the key to a solid nation and, you know, the ability to defend yourself was paramount and all of the, all of those good selling points for, for gun lovers, right? Now, additional fun little bit for the gun lovers, and this was, um, really interesting to read through was that the, I kind of learned just how intertwined the firearms business was in the 19th century, specifically like gunsmithing, gun manufacturing in America. See, the lead designers of the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company were two gentlemen called Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. When uh, the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company went bankrupt and was bought out by Winchester, which created solvency, allowing these two gentlemen to walk away and form their own company, Smith & Wesson, which might not have ever happened if they had remained buried under the mountains of debt that comes with came with bankruptcy in the 19th century. So we have Smith & Wesson. Let's start there. Now, once he had established the New Haven Arms Company, Winchester hired a mechanic from his shirt manufacturing business, who was also a remarkable gunsmith, called Benjamin T. Henry, who would almost immediately design and patent the Henry Repeating Rifle which is still an outstanding rifle manufactured today by Henry Repeating Arms. And while Winchester never quite managed the government contracts that he was hoping for during the Civil War, the company sold enough of the rifles to individual soldiers that they ran into manufacturing difficulties and had to outsource the making of some of the rifles to a factory owned by Samuel Colt. See? Smith & Wesson, Henry, Winchester, Colt. And we got one more big name coming up. That's not too bad. It's almost like a flat ginger ale, a ginger wine. It's not bad. It's, I mean, it's sweet. Kink. Need you to stay in my lap, baby. Now, this push to make more and more of the rifles soured Henry's relationship with Winchester. And while Winchester was in Europe trying to make more sales, he arrived in Switzerland one day and was a cable waiting for him from his son William and his friend John Davies, informing him that Henry had filed to reincorporate the New Haven Arms Company as a Henry Repeating Rifle Company. 
Uh, basically, Henry did a hostile takeover of the corporation while Winchester was out drumming up new business, and um, it was entirely Winchester's fault. See, before leaving on his sales mission to Europe, he had given power of attorney of the company to Henry. He thought that that would... He thought that if Henry felt he had some level of control, he would quit being so bitter about the upsweep in, or uh, the, um, not the upsweep, the uptick in manufacturing that Winchester had demanded that ultimately results in the outsourcing to Samuel Colt's factory. Uh, Henry, or I'm sorry, not Henry, Winchester was not amused by this antic at all, but he did not become the preeminent businessman he was by reacting in his fury. Instead, he took a step back, thought about it for a little bit, and knew from his, you know, 15 years of business experience at this point, uh, well, more than that, but, uh, you know, manufacturing and everything, that any company, like, like, will die without cash capital. And so he instructed his son to call in his personal loans to the arms company, which resulted in all Winchester cash being removed from the company, once that was done, Winchester filed papers of his own to incorporate Winchester Repeating Arms Company and waited until Henry went broke. And once the Henry Repeating Arms went broke, Winchester offered to generously pay all of their debts and buy the manufacturing capabilities back from Henry. Um, I believe this actually included the patents that Henry held on the repeating rifle. However, to avoid any conflicts and any f future problems with Henry, uh, of, you know, infringement, Winchester made several changes to design, and the Winchester repeating rifle became ubiquitous as the gun that won the West. And that launched the whole fortune that was well beyond the shirt fortune, right? Well, in addition to the shirt fortune, basically. Now, while all of this is going on, Sarah and William married and had a daughter, Annie, who died in less than a month, basically due to malnutrition. Which was not actually Sarah's fault. It's not like they deliberately starved the child. It, it was known back then colloquially as failure to thrive. She was unable to obtain sustenance from her mother's milk, which is known medically as marasmus. And obviously they have ways to deal with this these days, but back then, once it was diagnosed as such, all they could do was watch their, their daughter wither away, which is absolutely crushing. I, mean, I can't even imagine. Uh, Sarah and William were left devastated by this, and to help ease their grief, the two of them threw themselves into helping the senior Winchesters build a new residence on Prospect Hill in New Haven. And it was basically intended that the senior Winchesters and the junior Winchesters were going to live in this big family residence because there was plenty of money to make the house as big as needed to, to house the two couples quite happily, basically. And um, it, it was during this time that Sarah developed a love for architecture, which supplemented her love for fine woodworking, which she inherited from watching her father work. William's love of architecture was so acute, following his death, his mother set up an endowment at nearby Yale University that is still in effect today, because it was well-funded by <laughs> Winchester Rifles. The, the, the endowment is the William Wirt Winchester Fund, which is awarded annually to a graduate student in architecture to allow them to study and travel architecture outside the United States. Um, it is considered the School of Architecture's most prestigious award. So there's a little bit of irony in there, given, given how politically fraught everything is on campuses these days. But... I'm just going to leave that one right there. Now, as the Winchester Repeating Arms Company took off, Winchester Sr. sent his son and daughter-in-law to San Francisco to set up a sales hub there for the West Coast, which they did quite successfully. 
During this time, William Wirt Winchester, who develop, developed tuberculosis, started to become ill from this, and within a very short span of time, Sarah lost her mother, father-in-law, and husband. This all contributed to the later legends as well as to Sarah's outstanding wealth. So her mother, Sarah Pardee, died on May 11, 1880. Father-in-law, Oliver Winchester, uh, of whom Sarah was quite fond, uh, died on December 10, 1880. He'd had a stroke several months prior and it just caught up with him, basically. Then on March 7, 1881, William died, leaving Sarah a widow at just 41 years old, which, believe it or not, was closer to death than it is today, th back then than it is today. Uh, women tended to die between 55 and 60 years of age back in the 19th century. So, so the fact that it was actually her midway point means she had 41 years to live with the death of her husband, which is pretty sad. Not, let me think, who was it? William Polk's widow, I think, lived 49 years after Polk died. So she wouldn't, she's, she's not the longest live, laugh, lasting widow, but she's very close. Now, when William died, he left Sarah the executrix of his will, charging Thomas Bennett and William Converse, who were his brothers-in-law, uh, Bennett through marrying William's sister and Converse through marrying Sarah's sister as, as executors. Now, the two executors were only to offer advice to Sarah, never to require bond of Sarah or to interfere with her inheritance in any way, and, and they never did, and the family as a whole was quite close. And they set it up so that whenever Sarah wanted to spend money, she would let them know and they would wire it through the Winchester books, which was all quite legal back then. Probably wouldn't fly today, but it was quite legal back then. Now, as devastating as all these losses were to Sarah, they left her independently wealthy so that she did not have to rely on the good graces of her mother-in-law to support her. And wealth can have different meanings in different time spans, so what does that mean for Sarah in the 19th century? So her mother... Uh, through Sarah's father's death several years prior, had also owned stock in Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Uh, she owned 224 shares, which were split evenly among the six surviving party children. So Sarah ended up with 37 shares from Winchester stock. Uh, the total 224 shares were worth $22,400 in 1880, which using an inflation calculator totals to about $112,000 in today's money uh, that they each inherited, basically. So, yeah. Oliver Winchester's estate included 4,000 shares of Winchester Repeating Arms Company stock. Now, only 10,000 were issued, so it was he, he was the majority stakeholder, but the rest were split out among the different stockholders. Now, adding in what she inherited from her mother directly and following the death of her husband, Sarah ended up owning 777 shares at the time of Oliver Winchester's death. Oliver's will stipulated that his 4,000 shares would belong to his widow Jane until her death, at which point they would split, be split evenly between his two children, uh, his daughter Jenny Bennett, H Hannah Jenny Bennett, and his son William Winchester. And since William predeceased Jane upon Jane's death, 2,000 shares would go directly to William's heir, Sarah. So, let's see, William owned 521 shares of company stock when he died, Pass those shares directly to Sarah. She got 20, what, 37 shares from her mother, so that's 558 shares in the balance she'd already owned. So she already had 200 shares of her own, roughly. And directly from William, she inherited $362,330, which was worth about $8 million in today's currency. So that's, that's not bad for a little inheritance, and it lasted a, would have lasted, even without the stock, a hell of a lot longer back in the 19th century than $8 million would last today.
Now, the final connection to the great gunsmiths of the 19th century occurred after William Winchester's death. Uh, Thomas Bennett was made president of the company and used his new position to hire one John Moses Browning as a gunsmith for the company. So, yeah, everybody who was anybody, except I think Remington's the only one not mentioned in connection with the Winchester Company in some capacity. Now, Sarah, realizing that for the first time in her life she was quite independently wealthy, she, she didn't have to rely on anybody, uh, used some of that money to travel first through Europe, so she did do a tour of Europe before setting her sights on the West Coast. Now, the legends of her buildup of Yanada Villa into what would become the Winchester Mystery House would be many years in the future. The author provides many reasons why Winchester would have chosen to leave Santa Clara, chosen to leave New Haven and settle in the Santa Clara Valley as her final destination. So let's start with Sarah Winchester was an introvert by temperament. Had she stayed in New Haven, living at the residence she had helped design in her grief over her daughter's death, she would have been expected to take part in the New Haven social scene with her mother-in-law and sister-in-law, the whole Winchester clan. Not that there was a whole lot of Winchesters left, but she would have been expected to be part of the social scene. Moving to the West Coast, where there was no social scene, removed her from that pressure, for a time at least. Now, ultimately, or unfortunately for Sarah, she was not the only woman of wealth to move West, and San Francisco seemed to think that it was her duty to provide them with the social scene, which she completely ignored. And this started a hostile relationship with the press. Oh, I mean, at least the press was hostile to Sarah. Sarah didn't seem to give a shit one way or the other about the press. Uh, with one notable exception, when she lambasted a political critter for trying to use her name in his political campaigns, Sarah basically ignored the parasitic press in her day. Didn't care about him, didn't give two shits what they thought about her. Now, another reason that Sarah moved out west is climate. Uh, Connecticut, even in the warmth of summer months, is considerably cooler than Santa Clara Valley by a lot. And that coolness would have been absolute agony for Sarah, who had been diagnosed at like her late 30s, maybe by 40 for certain, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which disease would eventually make movement excruciatingly painful for her. And the heat helps. So why the constant building? So. That question, too, is answered. The author, after laying some detailed groundwork, hypothesizes that Sarah purchased Yanata Villa and built it up as a way to cope with her grief following her husband's death. Having learned that embroiling herself in architecture helps her to cope with her daughter's death, she sought to repeat that experience by building up her new residence. And constant building was not so constant. I know the Mystery House tour guides like to say it was built 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Building never stopped from the time she bought it until her death. Uh, excuse me. They say from 1884 to 1922. Well, she bought the house in 1886, which is when she purchased it. And the building was from 86 until 1906. It was not 24-7. It was normal working hours, but it was for 20 years. So why 20 years? Well, the author believes Sarah wasn't trying to keep away ghosts. In fact, Sarah had never in her lifetime mentioned ghosts or anything. That is all 100% the result of bad journalism. Gossip columnists trying to come up with something when Sarah gave them nothing because she was so introverted. Uh, Sarah wasn't trying to keep away ghosts. She was trying to keep away guests. See, whenever somebody would ask, hey, when can I come and visit you? I'm dying to see the new house. She would say, oh, well, now's not a good time. The house isn't done yet. I feel like, I feel like Sarah is like my introverted soul sister. 
But I felt that to my bones when I read that theory. I'm like, yes, 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 that's exactly right. No, no, I can't have people over. My kitchen is still a mess. The kitchen's not done yet. Kind of peaceful. Just, just saying, it's kind of peaceful not expecting people to come over. Now, in 1906, April 18th to be precise, San Francisco experienced a cataclysmic earthquake. Thousands died. It was a very bad fire. And the aftershocks were felt all the way out to Santa Clara. So it wasn't just San Francisco that was hit. The entire valley was hit. And um, this was a plot point in the movie Hollywood made a few years ago, which starred Helen Mirren as Sarah Winchester. And as entertaining as that movie was, for those who like a good ghost story, the building stopped at that point. Not because Sarah believed that she had conquered any ghosts, but because it was obvious her architecture just wasn't up to snuff. So the only construction done on the site from 1906 until her death was cleanup from the earthquake and whatever was needed to ensure the house didn't completely collapse. And Sarah took up more or less full-time residence at one of her other residences in Atherton. And she had other properties in the area, but primarily she lived at Atherton and would jump back and forth between Atherton and Yonata Villa. Now, Sarah, during the 41 years she lived following her husband's death, proved herself to be quite astute at land purchasing and investments. So when she died on September 5th, 1922, her estate was worth about $3 million or $54 million in today's currency. Almost like $54,962,000, so it's almost $55 million. Prior to her death, she had been outstandingly generous with donations, the vast majority of which were entirely anonymous. Uh, the only reason we know about them at all is because of the careful record keeping of her attorney, Frank, Frank Lieb. Um, he, he would keep track. She'd write letters to him and say, I want to make a donation here, keep it anonymous, and he would accordingly make the donation. So we know about it because of his record keeping, not because Sarah was looking for anything, well, anything, no recognition, which is partly why the papers hated her so much because she gave them nothing. I mean, she was the epitome of that gray stone gave him nothing to cling to. Love this woman. Now one of the donations that she is well known for because she did allow it to become, become public were multiple donations in the amounts of three million dollars each approximately nine million or three hundred thousand dollars each which would be approximately nine million dollars in today's currency to a tuberculosis hospital in Connecticut. Once it became known who their anonymous benefactor was, the hospital was named the William Wirt Winchester Hospital. And while initially the fund was set up to treat those with, lung, with uh, tuberculosis, namely, by the time Sarah's estate had run its course, that disease had largely been cured, or at least it was very treatable and it was no, no longer needed a specialty ward, basically. Now what do I mean by the time her estate had run its course? When Sarah died, she had set up several trusts for her heirs that were designed to provide them with monthly payments until their death. And then any money left in that particular trust would revert to the William Winchester Hospital in Connecticut. Well, by the time the last beneficiary of those trusts had died in like 2016, it was some absurd time later, uh, the tuberculosis was not really a thing. But given that the special circumstances, or given that special circumstance, the Connecticut court ruled that the hospital could still receive the trust as long as it used the money to treat lung diseases. I think Sarah would approve of that. Uh, Sarah incidentally did not just leave money to the family. I mean that was the bulk of her beneficiaries but she also let significant sums to individual members of her staff. 
all of whom had served her for at least a decade prior to her death and were outstandingly loyal to her. Uh, every single one of them denied to their own deaths that Sarah was trying to appease spirits with Sinata Villa. Every single one of them. Um, so, I mean, this legend mostly came from hostile newspapermen. Because of her introvertedness, coupled with her illness, she moved to California to be left the hell alone. And when she failed to provide the newspapers fodder for the journalists, they made up their own. Which is about right. Starting with the construct or the rumor that construction was 24-7 because of the ghosts of those killed by the Winchester firearms. And ending quite maliciously with the surprise that her estate was only worth $3 million. That, incidentally, was not Sarah's fault. Uh, the Winchester repeating arms was in a, a hot ramp-up of, of production of firearms during World War I, which ended quite abruptly with the armistice in November of uh, 1918. That was the armistice, right? That left the company strapped for cash. Like, literally, they had poured all their cash into building new facilities to keep this production going, and suddenly it was no longer needed. But they had already spent the money building these new facilities and the stock value tanked. It went from being worth $10 million to $3 million, basically overnight. The company as a whole, not just Sarah's fortune. And it never really recovered. Um, the, the last president, her brother-in-law, Thomas Bennett, died in 1930, and just one year later, that company went under to the Great Depression. It just died. The name exists today purely because it was purchased for marketing purposes by Olin Industries. Uh, the original Winchester plant did continue to manufacture until 2006, at which point it was shut down. Now, less than a year after Sarah died, about nine months actually, Yanata Villa was opened as a haunted house for tourism by one John H. Brown and his wife Mamie. The house itself was crumbling so badly that the land it sat on was more valuable than anything. It just could, just nothing could be sold. There was nobody able to, to purchase it, frankly. So Brown rented it at first, and he was part of the entertainment industry in kind of a roundabout fashion. He started out by designing roller coasters, and he started out by renting the place before buying it. Um, the, the sh in very short order, the revenues from tourism allowed him to buy it outright, and it's been open as a haunted house ever since, so over 100 years now. Now, adding an interesting cachet to the story is the fact that before he died, uh, Harry Houdini visited the house in 1924 and ultimately endorsed it as a tourist adventure, which is not actually to say that he believed the house was haunted, although I think the author seemed to think that he believed so. He did not believe in ghosts. He was ultimately a skeptic. You know, when he claimed that he saw Sarah Winchester, I'm pretty sure he was tongue-in-cheek and that he knew the whole thing was a humbug. I, I, I would actually bank on that more than anything. I think that's why he endorsed it as a tourist spot, not as a genuine haunted house. Now, the tour guides in the house know for a fact it's all humbug, and the people who knew Sarah argued with grim determination against the mystery house until one by one they all died as well. No one who actually knew Sarah ever heard her mention ghosts or spirits or remorse for her fortune. Not a single one. Um, you know, people who thought that, that she was standoffish and rude to not get out of her car when she was buying something didn't know what the merchant at the store knew, which was that she didn't get out of the car because her arthritis was crippling. And so they would bring things to her because that's what, you know, a good salesman does, right? At least that's what you did back then if you wanted some of that sweet, sweet Winchester cash. The building stopped April 18th, 1906. Mrs. Winchester spent the bulk of her remaining time at her second home, which was in Atherton. 
The only reason she was at Yonata Villa when she died is because it was closer to her primary physician. That was it. This book was quite well written, and it brought to life a much maligned and highly introverted woman who lived with a great deal of integrity. And she just wanted to be left the fuck alone, which is um, truly a goal I can get behind. It's kind of my life goal. Introverts of the world unite, but separately, never together, because we're introverts and that's what we do. That's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys on Sunday. Bye.